Revelation chapter 12. Just going to look at a couple verses here. Verses 10 and 11, and we'll focus primarily, primarily on 11. And uh, see what the Lord has for us. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 10. says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, and that which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved their lives, loved not their lives unto the death. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and open in prayer. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you be with us time of preaching, Lord. I pray that you fill me with your spirit. Help me to say only what you would have me to say. And Lord, I pray that your spirit speak to the hearts in here uh, tonight, Lord, and those that are watching online. Lord, I pray that you meet the needs that are present, especially if there's one in here with a need of salvation. Uh, Lord, I pray that you prick that heart and show them what great danger they are in, that they are under your condemnation, that your wrath is still abiding upon them, Lord. And I pray that they yield to your spirit's uh, drawing and put their faith and trust solely in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord, we know that you've said if, if one comes to you, you will not cast them out. And Lord, I pray for, again, if there's one in your that needs salvation, I pray that today be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, meet the needs. We heard some prayer requests. I pray that you be with those. And of course, bless um, our pastor as uh, him and Marianne are traveling back here shortly. And uh, Lord, just please uh, bless in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And do be in prayer for Pastor. Um, I was texting him a little bit, I believe it was yesterday, and he was mentioning that uh, their last night in Israel, they were going to be staying at the airport. So uh, they get, they're going to have dinner and then go straight from dinner to the airport and spend all night in the airport, fly, fly out at like 6 o'clock the next morning. So just kind of how the logistics of it worked out. So he's going to come back uh, Friday and then do Monday Faith on Saturday. So it could be uh, quite an interesting service, uh, but we'll see how that goes. Just keep him in prayer to the Lord, strengthen him and, and Marianne, of course, as well. <laughs> Revelation chapter 12, again, in verse 11 is what we're going to be looking at here. Uh, talking about they overcame him, of course, referring to the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. This is talking about, obviously, the Christians who have gone before, those who were accused by Satan, and of course now that would include all of us. We've all been accused by Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. And those that overcome Satan do so, this passage says, by three means. Salvation, a godly testimony, and then what I'm going to refer to as godly passions. They loved not their lives unto the death. And this third one is what this message will be focused on. The phrasing of this verse is really what struck me when I was uh, going through it here a few months ago. That they loved not their lives unto the death. This means there was something that was outside of their life that they loved. They didn't love their life. They didn't love themselves or anything that would bring them pleasure. They loved something else in order to persevere, in order to overcome the devil they had to love something that was outside of their life. There was something that they cherished more than their own life. Now, we could put your, ourselves in the shoes of these martyrs, renounce your faith or die, or renounce your faith or your loved ones will die. 
And, and that really puts it into perspective what we would love most or what we cherish the most. And you can just think of the, the thousands of millions who have, who have died for the faith, who have been martyred for the faith, and just think about that. Say, all right, you can either say these few words, I renounce Jesus Christ, or we're going to burn you alive, or we're going to put you on the rack, or whatever they're being threatened with. And they loved not their lives to the death. It was something they loved more than their own life. So what do we cherish in our life? What do we cherish? What do we love? There will always be contestants for our love. As if battling the flesh isn't hard enough, Satan puts things in our life that he will try to use to steal our love, to divert our love from God to something else. And what you cherish, what you love, will determine whether you overcome the devil or whether you do not. What you love will determine that. You can be saved and have a godly testimony and still be overcome by Satan. There have been many people who have had that. Because something stole their love, something diverted their love. To overcome the devil, to overcome temptation, it comes down to what you are loving. We've all been saved, we've been saved, those who have been saved, and we hopefully can have a godly testimony, but you can have a godly testimony and not be living right. Again, many, many people have. And again, to love something more than life is very, very unique. As Satan himself said in the book of Job, there's nothing a man won't give for his life. All that a man hath, he will give for his, for his life, for his soul. And so what are we, what is the love of our life? What are we loving in our life? Two main points then will make up this message. Things that divert our love and things that deserve our love according to Scripture. So first off, we're going to look at things that divert our love. What are the, some of those things that come in and they steal our love? That, if we want to look at practically speaking, these are things that we love more than God. More than obeying God. A recognition of these things in our life is very important if we want to overcome Satan, if we want to overcome temptation. The first one we're going to be looking at is a little bit unique, and I think it's, it can be very, very uh, prevalent in a life, and that is resentment. The thing that can divert your love, that can steal your love and your passion for Christ is resentment. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll look at a, a character that is pretty infamous for his resentment, for his bitterness, and that is King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Read a couple verses here out of this chapter, just looking at how Saul was beginning to resent David and then how he, how he resented him. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9. The previous verses are detailing when the women are singing, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul immediately begins to get envious, gets jealous of his kingdom. Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day 
and forward. Then you see him try to kill David the next day. Verse 15. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, of course referring to David, he was afraid of him. Now, resentment or bitterness sometimes become very cherished emotions in our life. Something we do not want to give up. Something that we will hang on to and we will, if someone's trying to point it out to us, we will hang on to that emotion with all we have. We do not want to give up bitterness or resentment. It's strange that such a negative emotion we can cherish so much in our life. Of course, it has no business being in the life of a Christian. Uh, we should not let the root of bitterness sink in. But here in this chapter, 1 Samuel 18, we are told three times that Saul was afraid of David. There was one time before verse 15, or, and then verse 15, and then at the end, verse 29, Saul was yet, was yet the more afraid of David, and Saul became David's enemy continually. But verse 15, where it's found he was afraid of him, is a different Hebrew word, it's a different definition than the other, other two. The other two are typically what we think of when we think of, of afraid, um, to fear. Um, but in verse 15, when it says he was afraid of him, it, most of the time that Hebrew word is translated sojourn. So it's, it's, a, it's an emotion that he's viewing toward David that is coming into his life and it's staying in his life. It's sojourning there. It is residing with him. This emotion, this bitterness and resentment that he has toward David, it's not going away. It's residing. It is sojourning in his life. And you see that, of course, with verse 29 where it says he became David's enemy continually. Saul was, from this time forth, was absolutely consumed with David. And trying to kill him, he resented him, hated him, till the day he died. David was his primary enemy. Because of his resentment, it changed how he acted as a whole. Even, of course, we know it changed how he acted toward David. At one time, he, the Bible says that he loved David. He kept him at his side. He became Saul, David became Saul's bodyguard. But now this resentment has come in. It changed how he viewed David, how he reacted, or how he acted toward David. But it also changed how he acted as a whole. How he acted as a king. Just ruined him as a king, this resentment. He kept the army busy, not fighting the enemies of Israel, but chasing David all over the country. Because of this resentment, he ended up having Doag wipe out a city of priests. He would have asked Saul when he became king, would you wipe out a city of priests? He would have said, no way. But his resentment over David, because he knew David had been at that city, and the priests, under David's deception, had given him bread and given him some help, and he said, I'm going to just wipe him out. And of course, Saul's own servants wouldn't kill him. It took an Edomite, the Edomite, to wipe out the priests. But that was under Saul's instruction. Because of his resentment, he even acted toward his own children differently. He used his daughter as bait. To get David killed. You have to kill, go kill a hundred Philistines and you can marry my daughter. Using his daughter as bait to try to kill David. He ended up throwing a javelin at Jonathan. His son, his heir. 
But because of his resentment toward David, it changed completely how Saul acted. And he was unwilling to let it go. He never let this resentment go. Never let this bitterness go. Even as David spared his life twice, he would not let go of this resentment. It was something that had diverted his love from God, and it just consumed his life. It changed how he acted. It changed how he viewed life. And this is true, or can be true of us as well. When our view of life is skewed because of resentment, because we've allowed resentment to sink in and bitterness to sink in, man, Satan's going to bounce us around like a yo-yo. He's going to have fun with that. He will use resentment. He will use bitterness. It's a very effective tool. You realize how much you will be hindered in the service of God in your walk with God because you're, not, you're unable to let go of some bitterness. You're unable to forgive Man, you hold something, uh, hold a grudge against, especially against a fellow believer. God's not going to forgive your sins when you sin. Uh, it's going to, it's going to burden you down. It's going to damage you so much you will be easy prey for the devil. There are, you're not going to overcome the devil. You're not going to overcome temptation when resentment is something that you cherish, that you hold on to, that you refuse to give up. This is something that diverts our love from God. Let's turn to Proverbs 15, verse 5. We'll look at this and then we'll move on. This is a very interesting verse to me. Proverbs 15, verse number 5. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Verse 15. Proverbs 15, verse 15. It says, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. When you feel you are constantly afflicted, your life's going to be pretty rough. When you have that resentment in place, you think everybody is out to get you. You're constantly afflicted. Your life's going to be evil. But the Bible says, he that hath a merry heart hath a continual feast. doesn't matter what's before him. He's going to have that joy in place, and he's going to serve God the proper way. Because he has that merry heart. But it all starts with how you view your life. And resentment drastically changes how you view life, how you view others. Don't let resentment sink in. It will steal your love in a heartbeat. Second thing we see that can divert our love is pleasure. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's turn there real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 3. read verses 4 and 5. 2 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, some of the, t- the uh, characteristics of the last times, the last days. Verse 4, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. People who have a, who have a love for pleasure, we would often categorize in a different, ca- different category than the people who attend Independent Baptist Church of Anchorage. We would put them somewhere else. 
Yeah, the people who love pleasure, those are the ones who are seeking after alcohol. Those are the ones who are leading the extremely immoral lifestyle. But the Bible says, you have a, you have a lover for pleasure, you've got to have a form of godliness. Or, as it's put in Revelation, as we already mentioned, you have a godly testimony. But you can still love pleasure. It will take away your love for God, which takes away the power of God, as it shows here. Denying the power thereof from such turn away. Now, the most obvious form of, of loving pleasure would be lust. And, of course, this is extremely, extremely dangerous and damaging to anybody. You start to cherish pleasure more than other things, more than obedience to God, it will destroy you. And the ease of access to fulfill these lusts only makes it more difficult to overcome. It's at your fingertips. It's in your pocket. It's all over. Very easy to fulfill these lusts. But pleasure is not confined to just lust. Some people take pleasure in belittling others. And they have a perverse pleasure in that. Putting someone down. Even if it's their own spouse. Feeling that level of superiority and, and being pleased in that. Following that kind of that perverse pleasure. Others hold the pleasure of activities to be more valuable to their lives than pleasing God. Entertainment ensnares many. Loving pleasure. The, the pleasure that entertainment brings. Variety of avenues with this. Sports, music, movies, social media, etc. All these avenues of entertainment can sink its hooks into anybody, but especially young people. And divert their love. Because the danger is these, especially forms of entertainment, will fill your mind. Instead of your mind being renewed by God, it will just be filled with what you are putting into it. With the sports, with the music, with the social media. It just fills your life. And I don't even talk about the time that is wasted spent on it. You sit down to do something for ten minutes and next thing you know it's been two hours. The things that most occupy your mind are the things that you deem most important in your life. Now, I'm saying, when you're at work, obviously you need, to, you need to do your best at work. I'm talking about those moments that you have, that spare moments, those spare moments that you have. What is filling your mind? Is it these pleasures that the devil offers, that the world offers? Or is it the things of God? If you are a lover of pleasure, if these things have priority over the things of God, you will be overcome by the wicked one. You will not overcome him. Because you're loving pleasure more than you're loving God. Third thing that we'll look at here, and the final thing with the things that divert our love, is praise of man. Let's look at John chapter 12.
John chapter 12, we have a couple verses that are just kind of snuck in, if you want to put it that way, into the Word of God. Obviously, you know that's not actually what happened. God wanted it there, put it in there for a reason. But you don't find it in the other Gospels. But John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. This is right before Jesus... um, the last and final instructions that he gives to his disciples before he, of course, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and is consequently arrested. But John 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Okay, just a fascinating couple verses here. But it shows where the love of men's praise, or what the love of men's praise will do to a life. When you are craving the acceptance of others, the praise of others, man, I just, I just really thrive on, after I get done doing something in a ministry, people say, man, that was a good job that you did. You made the best dessert at the, at the potluck, man, that was great. It just really gives me that emotional high. Or whatever ministry you might do. Singing, preaching. When that becomes what you are seeking after, it's going to destroy your spiritual life. Succinctly put, it will just hold you back in your spiritual life. These chief rulers were unable to move forward in their spiritual life because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. The next few verses is almost a rebuke to them. If you're going to believe on Christ, you're believing on God. And if you're believing on God, what are you worrying about anybody else for? What does it matter what other people think? It matters what God thinks. It matters to have God's praise, not man's praise. You can look at Ananias and Sapphira. Perfect example. They wanted the praise of men. So they lied. To God. And it costs them dearly. Those who seek men's praise will quickly be overcome by Satan. It's pride at its basest level, and he knows how to exploit pride like none other. There's a, uh, a, an, a, a, a book written. Um, don't agree with all, with all the doctrines of the... Uh, of the man who wrote it, but he was, one of them, he was like, man, you get, the devil just tries to get somebody to start to think they're humble. And they believe that they're humble. And he would, you know, that's what he tries to do. And over and over, he just tries to get people to believe that they're humble. That's one of the tools that he uses. So it's, if you think you're, <laughs> if you think you're oh, getting past pride, it's most likely an indication you're not. That's just, not nothing to do with the message here, but it's just, uh, just kind of thrown in there. But what are you seeking after? Are you seeking after men's praise? Is that something you crave? Is that the motivation of why you get up and do something? Your easy pickings for the devil. You will not overcome Satan. So the things that divert our love, again, three little three things, myriad of other things that you could choose. But resentment, pleasure, and men's praise. You're seeking after those, man. They can—they'll divert your love in an instant. And even if you're not actively seeking, 
if you're not guarding against it, they will divert your love quickly. So the things that deserve our love, according to the Word of God. The Bible is not just a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. It also tells us what we should do. We are told what we should love. The Bible just doesn't say, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. But he tells us what we should love. And we'll briefly cover them here. And these are things that the martyrs in our text would have loved more than their own life. First off, obviously, you have to love God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, this is the greatest commandment that is found. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. According to Jesus Christ, the greatest commandment given in God's law, in God's word, is this right here. We cannot gloss over the importance of loving God. This is not a trite command. No, we just need to love God more. You cannot overstate the importance of loving God. This is why it is the greatest command. Both Moses and Joshua, in their final address to the children of Israel, stressed the importance of loving God. Making Joshua, Joshua told the Israelites, make sure you cleave unto the Lord your God. Why is the love for God so crucial? Why can't we not just obey God absent of a love for Him? We can obey rules at work. We don't. doesn't mean we love work. doesn't mean we love our company. So why is it so important for us to love God? Because we cannot overcome the devil in our own strength. And if we love something that... It, something that is not God, then that is an idol. We are worshiping another God. We are cleaving to another God. And if we are cleaving to another God, God will not give us His strength to overcome. He is a jealous God. So if we have set up another God in our life, if we are loving something more than we love God, He's not going to give us the strength that we need to overcome Satan. And a love for God then is indispensable to wholly following the Lord, wholly obeying God. In Deuteronomy 6, you see what happens to those who love God. It says, then you start to obey the Word of God. That's what it's going to get into. Um, this portion um, will, be, will start, and then you'll, you'll see further on in Deuteronomy the judgment or the laws of God laid out. He, but Moses first starts with, you have to love God first. If you're going to wholly follow the Lord, you have to love Him. And he's going to be the one that gives us the strength to obey, that gives us the strength to overcome. We have to love God if we want to overcome Satan. Secondly, we are to love God's people. Let's turn to 1 John 4. 
1 John chapter 4, read verses 20 and 21. These are things that we should be loving, that deserve our love. 1 John 4, verse 20. It says, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now this is a little bit more difficult to accept than loving God. Yet it will be extremely crucial to our standing before God. To our ability to be salt and light in this earth. It's crucial to the unity of the church. To the effectiveness of the church. If in this body of believers we refuse to love one another, we will be ineffective in loving the lost, trying to reach the lost with the love of Christ. And how unified should the church be? You know, we have the old saying, well, I'm commanded to love you, but I'm not commanded to like you. I'm not saying all personality, personalities go along the best. But again, we have to understand what, a, what true love is. And that's a willing to, willingness to sacrifice. Do we have a willingness to sacrifice for others? For those who maybe we have a bit of a personality conflict with. Are we willing to sacrifice for them? How unified should the church be? Let's turn to John 17 for the answer to that question. This is scary. And a little convicting to myself. John 17 verse 20 is where we'll start read a few verses here. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. We are to be as unified as the Father and Son? The love we have for each other should be akin to the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. I don't know about you, but I've got a ways to go in that area. But that is what Christ wants the church to be. That is how unified He wants us to be. That's the kind of love He wants us to have for each other. And if we say, I love God, but eh, I don't really care what happens to my fellow believer. God says, you're a liar. You don't actually love me. We have to love God's people to overcome Satan. Numerous examples Christ gave, illustrations he gave about how our relationship with each other affects our relationship with him. You cannot hate your brother and have a close walk with God. God will not allow it. 
And again, it's hard to be resentful when you're striving to love someone. When you're actively trying to love somebody, sure, and they maybe keep putting you off. They maybe dig the dagger in a little bit at times. But it really is hard to be resentful if you are actually trying to love someone. Because it's not conditioned on their actions. It's on your own desire to love them. So we have to love God's people. We have to love God, love God's people, and thirdly, we must love God's Word. Let's turn to Psalm 119, verse 92. Psalm 119, of course, deals heavily with the Word of God and the incredible importance it plays in the life of a believer. And throughout the psalm, you see different difficulties that the psalmist was facing. But verse 92, Psalm 119, verse 92, I think summarizes the entire psalm. Unless thy law had been my delight, I should then have perished in my affliction. The importance of the word of God to our lives is summed up in that verse. If you do not love God's word, you're going to perish. In your afflictions. When the trials come, you will fall. You will be overcome. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. And again, when you have a love for God, you will always have a love for God's word. You'll never find those two separate. You have a love for God's word, you'll have a love for God. They're, they're interchangeable. And the importance of, life, of God's word to a life cannot be overstated, just like a love for God's word cannot be overstated. And the psalmist here is acknowledging the only reason he was able to overcome the affliction, to make it through the affliction that he was going through, to make it through his hard time, was because he loved God's Word. He wasn't saying, man, if I, if I hadn't had so much wisdom, I, I would have fallen. Or if I hadn't been blessed by God with this tremendous intellect, I would have been fallen. Or if I hadn't been blessed by God for this large bank account, I wouldn't have gotten through this financial hardship. No, he says, unless thy law had been my delights. I would have perished. So how many times do we fall in the storms that we face simply because we love things more than God's Word? We love something else more than God's Word. We loved sleep more than God's Word. We loved social media more than God's Word. I saw, I saw a quote um, uh, online from, uh, and it was saying that the, the one great usefulness to Facebook and Twitter is that at the judgment day, God will be able to determine that our lack of prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. I thought that was very, very well put. And the same is true about our lack of reading the Bible. is not for a lack of time. It's from a lack of desire, a lack of a love for God's Word. Again, the desire for God's Word, the love for God's Word, the love for God, the love for God's people is necessary if we want to overcome Satan. If you do not have that in place, if you love something in your life, Satan will have a field day with you. But if you love not your life, 
There is something outside of your life that you love. Things that God has said we should love. You will overcome Satan. God will give you that strength needed to endure the temptation, to suffer through the affliction, and to make it through. But it's something diverting your love. They overcame him because they loved not their lives unto the death. So what love are we disregarding in our life? There's the love for the worldly, the fleshly things. Are we going to cast that off and love the things of God? Or are we going to cast off the things of God and love the things of the world? Because we will disregard one of them. It's a choice. If the Lord be God, serve Him. But if Baal be God, serve Him. It's a choice. We're either going to love God and disregard the world, or we're going to disregard God and love the world. So what is it going to be? Will you overcome, or will you be overcome? It's all hinges on what you love. Let's go ahead and bow our heads, close our eyes. Go into a time of invitation here.